and hear your word speak to us. We love you. Amen. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to be reading all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 5, verse 11. And we'll read first, and then we'll dive right in. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now, when we come to this passage, there are two things happening at once. I need you to see these two things that are happening at once in order to grasp this text. First, the first thing that's happening is the salvation of believers. It is only for believers, and believers get this salvation. And that's what's being talked about primarily in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 13, through the end of that chapter. That's salvation he's talking about. The Lord coming back and the resurrected bodies of the saints being met in the clouds with him. And we talked about this last week. We dug deep into this last week uh, about what these things mean and what these different phrases mean and what it'll look like. This week we're talking about that and the simultaneous thing that's happening of the judgment of the wicked. 
which we read about in Psalm 110 this morning when we opened, and we, you can read more about in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus himself articulates these things and calls it a thief coming in the night, like lightning in the sky. This will be in a moment. It will be devastating. And by the time you look up, as we know from the Gospel of Luke, by the time you look up, you will see uh, vultures circling. If you're waiting for the end, by the time you realize it's happened, it will be over. Everyone will be dead. That's what he means when he says, you'll see the birds of prey circling overhead. It means that there's a bunch of corpses on the ground. It's over. Judgment has already landed. You don't have time. You need to repent and believe in Jesus now. That's Jesus' point. You need to repent and believe now. And this is echoed here in verse 10 of chapter 5. When it reminds everyone here, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are Christians who are walking on this earth or Christians who have been buried in the ground, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He doesn't use the term dead when he describes Christians because Christians don't die. Not in the spiritual sense, not in the eternal sense. We don't walk into death, we walk into life. We live now and we will live then. Abundant life has been given to us and it's a permanent thing. We have this myopic scope here on this earth where we think that life and death are things that happen here. They aren't. Life is an eternal state and death is also an eternal state. You are either eternally alive or eternally death and those lines, they don't cross. You're on one or the other. You get moved from one to the other when you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When you trust Him as your Savior, you get moved to life. And your life is eternal. So, that is how we must think about this as we dive into this. And just to back up a little bit, I want to talk about the day of the Lord. Or the returning of our King, one or the other. They are the same thing. They happen simultaneously, but the scripture has this phrase, the day of the Lord. And I want to distinguish that phrase from the day of Jesus Christ and the day of Christ our Lord. Whenever Christ is present, salvation is present. But when we read the scripture, there's this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming and it's coming soon. And I know it's soon because it's sooner than it was yesterday. Right? It's always soon, because it's sooner than it was yesterday, because we're a day further. So we can say with confidence, when is the day of the Lord coming? Soon. We can say it confidently, because it's sooner than it was five minutes ago. It's coming, and it, we're getting closer. So the warning always exists. So one, I want to I distinguish here the day of the Lord, or in the Old Testament, the day of vengeance, or the day of judgment, from the day of Christ or the day of Jesus. The day of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament 19 times. 19 times that phrase is used, the day of the Lord. And in the New Testament, it's used four times. One of them is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I mean chapter 5, verse 2. You've got this picture, the day of the Lord, right? And, and this day of the Lord is always tagged to judgment and wrath. It's always attached to that. So you've got the day of the Lord is coming. But then there's the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Christ, 
and the day of the Lord Jesus, when you, when you tag Jesus onto the day of the Lord, when you tag Jesus onto judgment, this always happens in the scripture. Whenever Jesus is mentioned in association with the day of the Lord, all of a sudden that day is talking about salvation. All of a sudden it's talking about salvation. So the application is simple for us. Wherever Jesus is present, there is salvation for us. Wherever Jesus is present, there's salvation. Where the name of Jesus covers my name, there's salvation. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Right? That's what the scripture says. Your name gets written in the Lamb's book of life. That's because the Lamb's name covers yours. It's closed. It's the Lamb's book. His name covers yours. So we see whenever it talks about the day of, the, of judgment coming and they tag Jesus onto it, all of a sudden you can't help but rejoice. It's salvation. It's salvation. When someone knows Jesus, the end is simply the beginning for us. It is life and life eternal. It is salvation. So there's the first difference between the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to distinguish that as we look at the day of the Lord here um, and just think about some of the characteristics. It's first, the characteristics of the day of the Lord, the judgment day, is that it is always connected with judgment and wrath. All through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, whenever this is mentioned, it's connected to judgment and wrath. Um, I'll rattle off, let me see where I've got my list here. Um, I'll rattle off the list of where these are used for you, just in case you're curious. That's the wrong page. There we go. Um, in... The day of the Lord, where did I put it? It's over here. Here it is. The day of the Lord is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, Isaiah 13, verses 6 and 9, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 5, chapter 30, verse 3, Joel chapter 1, verse 15, 2, verse 1, 2, verse 11, and then 31, 3, verse 14, and Amos chapter 5, verse 18, it's mentioned twice in verse 20, and then in Obadiah, uh, verse 15 and Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7 chapter 14 and Zechariah 14 1 and Malachi 4 5 and then in the New Testament it's mentioned in these places Acts 2 20 2 Thessalonians 2 2 and 2 Peter 3 10 it is always a place where wrath is poured out by God it's always a place where wrath is poured out by God 19 times in the Old Testament, mostly in the Minor Prophets. And then three, that's four times in the New Testament, all in the letters. It is always a place where wrath is poured out. It is also always spoken of as imminent. It's always coming tomorrow. So think about that. In Isaiah, it was coming tomorrow. In 700 BC, it was coming tomorrow. It's going to be here the next moment. In Ezekiel, it's coming in the next moment. In 1 Peter, it is coming in the next moment. This is the way we are to think about the judgment of God, that we don't know when it's coming, and it is coming in any moment. There is not time. There is not time. There's not time. There's, 
This is coming in the next moment. That's why evangelism is so urgent for us because the scripture tells us you don't know when this is going to happen and when it comes, it's done. That's why it's so urgent that we share Christ spoken of as imminent, especially in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, and in Joel chapter 1, verse 15. They both say the day of the Lord is near. It is near, and it's drawing nearer every moment. Third, it is often a dual fulfillment in the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament, there are dual fulfillments. Um, what I mean is this, in, in Isaiah chapter 7, when it talks about the young woman or the, the virgin who will give birth, Isaiah is talking about his own wife and about Mary. He's talking about both of them. It's got a dual fulfillment. When his wife is... Um, is pregnant, she will have a child. They will name him Emmanuel because God has been with his people Israel and he's protected them from the Babylonians at the gate. Right? That's, that's Isaiah's immediate prophecy. And then Jesus and Matthew, it takes the same prophecy and says, behold, a virgin will give birth to a son. And that's Mary. So this has a dual fulfillment. Both are fulfilled, both are true, and both get yes. Often in the Old Testament, when you read a prophet, they're getting a dual fulfillment. They're getting a fulfillment that is mostly what is said right there. And then they're getting a fulfillment that is even greater later. And most of the time when it talks about the day of the Lord, that, is, that have a dual fulfillment. The Babylonians are at the gate. The day of the Lord is coming. And the way you know it's a dual fulfillment is the first fulfillment doesn't quite cut it. The first fulfillment is almost just a picture. It's just a picture of what's to come. It's just an image of what is going to be greater, what Hebrews calls a shadow of the things that are to come. So we see in this dual fulfillment all throughout the Old Testament, there's often a dual fulfillment. For example, Obadiah chapters one, I mean verses one through fourteen are about Edom's destruction. But then in chapter in verse fifteen it goes on, and all of a sudden it's about the destruction of all sinful wickedness. And they're tied together in Obadiah, because he's talking about Edom, one country, and then all of a sudden it extends to all sin being obliterated. And wiped out. It extends to all wickedness. So we know that there's a dual fulfillment there. And we see it all through scripture. So we've got first. The characteristics of the day of the Lord. Are that it's always connected with judgment and wrath. It's always spoken of as imminent. And it's often a dual fulfillment. And then the, the next thing to think. The next character trait. Is that there are warning signs. For the day of judgment. There are warning signs. I love this truth. This truth that God sends warnings to those who do not believe. He sends you warnings. He sends warnings to your neighbors. He sends them to people. God doesn't catch people off guard. He's not trying to trick anybody. He is showing you exactly what's coming over and over and over. And in Matthew 24, he talks about the signs that will be in the heavens and you will see them. They will be all over the place. So let's just list off some of these signs. 
Um, there's a forerunner who's going to come like Elijah that's going to come and warn the people. There's a worldwide rebellion in Revelation. It says there's going to be a worldwide rebellion right before he returns. Uh, there's the man of lawlessness, which we will study in chapter in uh, 2 Thessalonians. There's the man of lawlessness, also known as the Antichrist, not an Antichrist, but the Antichrist. There's the Armageddon where an army, uh, army amasses against the people of God. There's signs in the heavens. There's natural disasters that are going to happen. There's false teachers that will be everywhere and will abound all over the place. The more false teachers there are, the, more, the sooner judgment's coming. So the more that you see false teachers show up, the quicker that judgment is going to start coming and people start to feed on false teachers. You'll see it. Economic disaster will start to happen across the globe. Oh, are you getting nervous? Because we should be. Um, natural disasters will start happening. And the gospel, and this is a great one, this is the only positive sign, the gospel will begin to be proclaimed albeit ignored or rejected, but proclaimed across the whole earth. The gospel will be proclaimed across the whole earth right before the coming of the day of the Lord. All these are signs that God gives to humanity to warn us, to tell us, repent now and believe you don't have a second chance. When the second coming happens, it's over. It's done. Finally, the last character trait of the day of the Lord is that it's comprehensive. And we see that up in the passage we read this morning. Sudden destruction in verse 3 of chapter 5. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape. It's comprehensive. No one escapes this unless they're covered in the blood of Jesus. No one escapes this unless they have trusted in Christ. No one escapes this judgment unless they know Jesus Christ. And then, because they know Jesus Christ, it is a rejoicing and a feast and a delight to have Him come back. And we rejoice with Him. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, in your Bibles, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And we're going to look at some of these things. We looked at this in detail last week, but we're going to just review some of these things and kind of look at them a little bit more in depth as what is it like? What is the day, the day of redemption or the day of the Lord like? When someone dies, what happens with Christians? So verses, let's get to verse, uh, let's go with verse 15 to start with. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. First, I want you to see the what's called a chiastic structure, which means that this grammatically and poetically makes an X. There's A, and in poetry it would be A, B, C, B, A, right? You make an X here, and it points to the center 
phrase, the, the Lord's coming, the Lord will descend. The first part of it is we who are alive, we who are alive, who are left. And then it talks about the people who are already dead, who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep, it says, we who are alive and those who are asleep. And in the middle, the Lord descending with a trumpet and the sound of an archangel, the Lord descending. And then it mentions again, those who are dead will rise first. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with them in the crowd, in the clouds. Now, it's important to note that this passage, chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, is talking about believers. Only believers are included in this. Only believers rise again. Only believers rise to life to meet with Him and live with the Lord forever. Only believers get caught up with Him in the clouds. This is about Christians. So what does it look like when Christians die? When Christians die, they go to be with the Lord. But there's going to come a day when He comes back, and on that day that He comes back, there's a resurrection. A physical, bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear that this is a literal resurrection from the dead. You get a body, one of these, in heaven that is real, that is glorified, and that is perfect. You get a new body. So all these aches and pains that we have, because, you know, it's just... You're, you're there now, right? There's that comedian that says, you know, I, uh, I woke up today and my knee hurt. So I guess that's a thing now, right? You hit a certain age and it just, just parts start to hurt. Right? This, is, this is life. But, but hear this, you get, you get resurrected with a new body that is, that is somehow new and the same. Somehow new and yet you're recognizable. It's somehow completely changed and somehow completely the same. You are still you. In fact, you are you to another level. You are exactly who you are supposed to be, designed the way God made you. And just to dispel anything, you all look different. Every one of us looks different. It says every star has its own glory. Every seed has its own glory. Everything looks different, 1 Corinthians 15. Everything has its own. Why do you think God would be less creative in heaven? Of course, he's going to be more creative. There's going to be more for you. So what does this look like? What does this look like for us? First, it comes with a shout of command. As a conquering warrior gives orders for an officer to his troops. This is a shout of command first. So, First it comes with a shout of command, which means there's some sort of authority structure here. In Jesus coming, he's giving commands to the troops. So he gives this command. It's a shout of command. And note, it's a shout of command that supersedes death or is overpowering of death. This shout of command overpowers death. The command is so strong that death can't stop it. Hear that. Jesus' command to resurrection and to life at the second coming is so powerful that death can't stop it. Bodies come out of the grave. 
And I don't know what that'll look like because I, I know bodies decompose. Like, I, I get it. Like, I understand. So where are they going to come from? Is God not great enough to constitute a new body? Is God not great enough to make out of the dirt Adam and Eve? Is he not... Is he not great enough to make out of the dirt Adam and breathe life into his nostrils? If he's great enough to do that, I'm pretty sure he can put back together that which is decomposed. I'm pretty sure he can resurrect from the dirt life again. So it's a command that supersedes death. In John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus talks about this hour that is coming. And he says, an hour that is, is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And that, of course, is both a dual statement, isn't it? Because he talks about the dead in Christ. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and live. And then just a few chapters later, he stands in front of a tomb and goes, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, death is overcome by the command of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' command brings life. His very cheer, it, it brings us back to life when everything is dead. When everything is gone, the command and life and word of Jesus brings us all back to life. And one day it will be physical, real. Right now it is spiritual and true. We have full life in Jesus Christ. That which was dead inside us is made alive. We are no longer old. We are new. It is from Christ. This command is issuing from Jesus and death is overcome by his command. And then the second thing we see on that day is that an archangel and a trumpet will blow. An arch- These are grammatically, they're tied together. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet are tied together as if they're one thing. So you've got two options. Either there are two things that happen simultaneously or the voice of the archangel sounds an awful lot like a trumpet. It can be either. They're both, it's both, both are safe theologically to say. There's not a discrepancy here unless you worship angels, which we don't. So you're safe. Right? Uh, We worship Jesus. Angels are servants of Jesus. They're servants of God. They are not, uh, they are not themselves divine. They are heavenly creatures. Angels are creatures. That's what they are. They're advanced animals. Right? They're, they're creatures. I I know that sounds trite. I'm not trying to be. They're, they're beyond us. They're heavenly. They're spiritual beings. But they are not, they are not human. They're a different kind of creature. They are not human. And we know they're not human because angels look at you and me and Peter says they are jealous of us. They are envious of us. They are jealous of what we get. They are jealous of what we get. They don't get to see the mercy of God. So we see with the voice of an archangel and a trumpet, they get blow, they, they, there's this noise, this sound. These two things connected together. Archangel, uh, the word archangel is used only one other time in the New Testament. That's in Jude chapter 9 when it talks about Michael arguing with Moses, or arguing with, with the adversary over the body of Moses. Weird passage. We're not talking about that right now. 
just file that one away. If you want to talk about it at lunch, I'm game. So we've got this interesting picture of Michael, the archangel, speaking there. Michael is the only one who's ever referred to as an archangel in the Bible. He shows up in the book of Daniel as well. Um, and we don't know what an archangel really is. The Bible doesn't necessarily talk about angels very much, except to reference them when they're doing something God has commanded. And you know the two big ones that are mentioned, Gabriel and Michael, right? Those are the two big ones. Gabriel's always in conjunction with an announcement, and Michael is always in conjunction with a battle or an argument or a debate or struck something where there's something going on, where there's some sort of fight. He's always connected with those two. Um, so we, we see that Michael contends with the devil over the body of Moses. Now, just a side note. When Michael contends with the devil, when, when Michael wars against the devil, and, and that would be the sound that we would make if we were at war, right? Just like that. I, I want you to hear, I, I just, I'm just going to make a side note. The sound of a, of a young toddler going to war is the equivalent of the sound of us fighting against God. It's only, it's only slightly irritating, right? Like it doesn't accomplish anything when we try to war with God. It, it's, it's just, rah! Can you, can you imagine going to battle and... You see this mighty, massive warrior, and you go, Rawr! Michael, the archangel, leads the army of God. I guess we're going to get back on track. Michael, the archangel, leads the army of God against the adversary, and that's what he hears. What, what we hear is a trumpet and command that defies death. What we hear is a trumpet and a command that defies death and overcomes all of death. Now, when Michael wars against the devil, it's important to note in Jude, chapter nine, in Jude verse 9 that he uses the word of the Lord to defeat the adversary. He uses the word of the Lord to defeat the adversary. He says, may the word of the Lord rebuke you. He uses the word of God. So if the archangel of God uses the word of the Lord to defeat the adversary, what are we doing if we're using other things? If we're trying to hinge on other issues or trying to do what some of our um, brothers and sisters do and make magic incantations. No, the, the word of the Lord defeats the adversary. So when he comes around and tries to tempt you and weigh heavy on you or when he tries to call you something you're not, you hinge on the word of the Lord Michael shows up in the Bible, by the way, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and in Revelation 12, verse 7. He is leading the army of the angels against the adversary. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, it says, At that time, Mike, at that time shall arise Michael, a great prince who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as there has never been since there was a nation Till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall wake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to, to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up these words, seal them in a book until the, end of, until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Michael is given charge in that passage to protect God's people. And when is he given charge in that passage to protect God's people? But at the second coming. When the dead in Christ will rise. And as we read there, those who are asleep will rise. Some to everlasting joy and life. And some to everlasting shame and contempt. Those who believe in Jesus Christ resurrected to life. The trumpet will sound in that last day as well. So we've got... The voice of an archangel and the trumpet will sound. And in the last day, a trumpet will sound. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 says it this way. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and shall be changed. So the Bible has several reasons for trumpets. Several reasons for trumpets. One is a feast. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, it's about a feast. It's, you blow a trumpet when you start a feast. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15, it's for celebration. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24, it's for convocation, a, a gathering to uh, commemorate or do something together. In, uh, ch- in Numbers chapter 10, verse 2, and Judges chapter 6, verse 34, it's blown just to gather the people of God. That's the only reason it's blown, to get them all to come to one place. In, chapter, in, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 9, you blow a trumpet for war. You blow a trumpet for war. It's interesting, you don't blow the trumpet at the end of the war, you blow it at the beginning of the war because the victory in Jesus has already been won. God proclaims his victory before the battle's over. Before the battle begins, he proclaims his victory and he blows a trumpet. These trumpets are not trumpets of fear or trumpets to prepare the gates. They are trumpets of victory over the adversary before it even happens. And then in uh, it's the last usage of it in the Old Testament is for announcements. In 1 Samuel 13, 3, 2 Samuel 15, and, uh, 15, verse 10, and 20, verse 1. And then in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, you see it three times blown as announcements. So how fast will this occur? How quickly will this come? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, just then, in the twinkling of an eye, which is the blink, a blink. A blink of your eye, it will happen. So just, if you're like me, just think, like, go ahead and blink, and you'll see. Like, that's how fast it happens. It's like that. That's how fast the trumpet comes. That's how suddenly it comes. As one who blinks. God frequently uses trumpets to herald his coming. All through the Old Testament, he uses it to herald his coming. But there's one point that stands out above all the others. And that's in Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 8, God proclaims the year of Jubilee. And it's a trumpet blast Jubilee. This is the, the big thing in Leviticus. Leviticus, by the way, a book of laws, some of them incredibly detailed, some of them incredibly difficult, some of them very, very, I mean, he goes into detail even about how long you should cut your hair. The, Leviticus is a detailed book of law. So we see in this book, 
this thing in chapter 25, the year of Jubilee, where God proclaims liberty to the captives. Whenever you hear a horn blast of any kind, you ought to be reminded of liberty to the captives because that is the biggest point that God makes with trumpet blasts. The year of Jubilee was supposed to be every seven years. And then again, in the 49th year, you're supposed to have a year where debts are canceled and everyone's forgiven and everything goes to even. And you live as a community of love together and there are, there's forgiveness and there's, there's laws about how you take care of widows, orphans, broken people. There's all these things, and they all culminate in the year of Jubilee, the proclaiming of liberty to the captives, the very thing Jesus goes up to the pulpit in uh, Luke chapter 4 and opens, and he says, Behold, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's freedom for us. This trumpet that sounds like that, that happens so quickly, is a, is a freedom for us. We delight in the freedom that this provides us. This is liberty for the captives for us. So the day of the Lord, the Lord's coming, will be a, uh, it will be sounded by the voice of an archangel and a trumpet. It will overcome death. It will be sounded by the voice of a trumpet. It will be sudden and you will hear it, it will be audible, and it will be visible. This is a public thing. Everyone will see this. Everyone will see this. No one is left out. The Lord himself will descend, and that's emphasized. The Lord himself will descend here. In Revelation 1, 7, it's obvious this is a visible thing. In uh, here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it's obvious it's an audible thing, an oral thing. You hear it. You hear it. You see it. It is a real, physical, visible thing. It is for judgment or deliverance. And Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46, talks about this even more as a deliverance or judgment, one or the other. And then he will come as you have seen him go. Now, it's just... Just pause before we move to chapter 5. Just pause and think about these three verses, uh, 15, 16, and 17, and, and realize what we've seen is that the Lord is coming visibly. The Lord himself will descend. He will come, and he's going to come down, and we're going to be caught up in the clouds with him, and we will be with him forever. Just think about that for a minute, and then think about this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, the angels stand there with the, all the disciples of Jesus are gaping at the heavens. They're looking up and he has ascended into the sky and they're there for quite some time. They're there for a while watching him float away, watching him ascend into the sky. And what's the angel say? The angel says, why do you wait here? Why are you standing here? Behold, he is going to come back in like manner. He's going to come back the same way. And they're standing there watching him ascend for a while. He's going to come back in the same way. And I, I have to think that that means that we're going to see him coming back. And there's time for us to be caught up in the clouds. God is patient with what he does. He doesn't rush it. 
He's patient and he's going to come back and it's going to be glorious. And there's going to be some time here. In Luke chapter 21, verse 51, it says the same thing. He's going to be ascending. He's going to descend the same way he ascended. So chapter 5 then jumps ahead and goes, okay, now concerning the times and the seasons, because this is what everybody wants to know. How and when? How and when? They're not concerned about the what. God tells us the what over and over. But they all, everybody wants to know when. When is Jesus coming back? And I think there's two reasons that people want to know. There's two reasons. One, they don't want to do it now. They don't want to confess and repent and believe now. They don't want life now. They want it later. They want, it, they want a deathbed resurrection. They want a deathbed conversion, right? Like, if I can just get it at the last second. And here's the problem with that. They, when people do that, what they're saying is that life apart from Jesus is more fun than life with Jesus, but I want eternity with him. Do you see the contradiction? If life now with Jesus is not good, if you don't like it now, you're not going to like eternity with him. That's illogical and doesn't make any sense. That's the first problem. The second problem with that is that you're looking at the difference between death and misery and depression and all the world has to offer you. And don't get me wrong, that's what the world has to offer. Depression, misery, discomfort, lousy lifestyle, selfishness, wickedness, all these things, they're all wrapped up in what the world offers us. You're looking at that and going, that is better than joy, peace, happiness, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That is the things that the world offers me so much better than, than, those, than these things of God. And we are exactly what C.S. Lewis calls us, Children from the slums playing in the dirt because we can't imagine a holiday at sea. There's so much more to to life than the garbage the world tells you is joy. There's so much more to it. So much more peace and joy and happiness and life to be had. But we always ask how long. And the first reason that people don't want to, the people want to ask that question is because they want to know when they have to. When do I have to stop wallowing in the mud? The second reason that people ask when is because they're in deep struggle now and they're tired. And that one breaks my heart because we're tired. And you know what's great about that one is Jesus is with us now. And even in our exhaustion, He's with us. Lord, when will you come back? And He's going, I know. I I know. I've got perfect timing. I know how you feel. I know the pain. I want it too. But there's a perfect time. And that time, it will be right when I come. Trust me. But the great thing about our Messiah is He doesn't just tell us that and leave. He sits with us where we are. He puts his arm around us. He gives you a word. He gives you the word of the Lord to read and feast on, to sit with him, to listen to him. He weeps when you weep. 
He laughs when you laugh. He rejoices when you rejoice. He walks through the same things you walk through. Indeed, every pain and suffering and trial, every suffering you have had, every difficulty, every even physical issues, everything, he feels and knows and walks through them with you, putting his spirit inside you that you would know him and that he would know you. That second one is an okay reason to ask when. So long as you're willing to accept the answer of you don't get to know. That's what Jesus tells everybody. The hour is not for man to know. The Lord says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 36 and then he says it again in 24 verse 43. And then it's reiterated in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. That hour, no man knows. Indeed, only the Father knows. Only the Father knows the hour. But what can we know? We can know the what. We don't know the when, but we can know the what. So chapter 5, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware, and we're going to talk more about the applications from this passage, but we're going to look specifically at the second coming judgment day here. But you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So first, it's going to come like a thief in the night. When everybody's saying that they're safe and everybody's saying that they're secure, thief, a thief comes. So thieves, first, thieves don't give warning letters. Thieves don't send you a letter saying, I'm going to rob your house February 6th at this time this day please be aware and please don't be in your house because it would make it a whole lot easier if you're out of town that day so thieves don't send notes they don't send warning letters they don't send you a little sign that says we're going to do this this night second peter chapter 3 verse 10 talks about how the thief comes and goes before the master is there people are caught off guard by thieves and i don't know if you've ever been robbed before i have if you've ever been robbed before where somebody broke into your house and took your stuff, that, that's happened to me a couple times in my life. And every time I was not prepared. I have, oh, and I was prepared as much as you can be. I had insurance. I had locks on the door. I had an alarm system at one point. All of these things, like, I've, I've had those things and they, they don't work. The thieves still, if a thief really wants to take your stuff, they're going to. Now, they might get caught, but they also might not. It's kind of 50-50 chance, right? Like, So thieves break in and steal. People are caught off guard by thieves. So first, thieves don't leave warning letters. Second, thieves catch people off guard. But you are not like others. You should not be caught off guard by the judgment of the Lord. It is coming. And you are owned by him. You are his. So thieves here in verse 2 come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So first, judgment comes like a thief. It's going to come quick. It's going to come sudden and you're not going to be ready for it. No one's going to be ready for it. No one's going to be ready for judgment. There's going to be peace and security is what he says. And it's going to come like labor pains, like all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's going to come. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers. There's another emphasis that we'll talk about next week. But you are not in darkness, brother, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or darkness. 
Thieves come in darkness. Thieves come in darkness. Thieves come to steal and destroy. Thieves come when you can't see them. Christians are not beholden to a thief. Jesus is not a thief for us. His coming back is one of rejoicing and amazement. And we will stare into the clouds and see him coming. And we will be caught up in the clouds with him. And we will be with him forever. And there will be glory and joy and new bodies and new physical bodies and life eternal. And not just, not just like learning to play the harp and sitting on a cloud. Like, no, so much more than that. That's nonsense. We, we will be in a, an infinitely creative God's heaven with no sin and no death and no destruction and no decay for eternity. An infinitely creative God who's going to continue to create. We tend to think of heaven as if it's God's attic and all the good stuff gets stuck up there and then he pulls it down at the end times. No. Heaven is entirely new and it's infinitely being created. What do you think it means in Revelation when it says he is making all things new? Present tense. He's going to continuously make all things new. All the burdens and pains and all the weight of this world pass away. And the one thing that remains is the love and presence of God himself. That you can know today. You can know that now. You can know that love and that presence right now. In trusting Jesus Christ, you can know it. The second coming is wrath to those who don't know him. It is a thief in the night to those who don't know him. It is lightning in the sky that brings torment and death to those that don't know him. But to those of us who know him, it is life and salvation and being caught up with him forever and joy forever. Oh, that we would trust him. And knowing this, that we are not, that we are, verse 2, that we are fully aware, that we are, verse 5, that we are children of light, children of the day. And verse 9, that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing those three things that he said about us, knowing those three things, this is salvation and life. Oh, encourage one another with thoughts of heaven, with thoughts of life forever. Encourage one another with these thoughts. Encourage one another that we would stand and worship the Lord together and that we would know Him forever, that we would trust Him for salvation. This, to us, is beautiful. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Lord, we pray that our minds would be so focused on You